Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're back to our regular Thursday taping this week. It's 9.30 on September 27th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we're joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. And we're pleased to welcome to our podcast gal table, Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Welcome, Alice. Thanks so much. Today we have an interview I did last week with Bruce Leslie. He's president of the Children's Advocacy Group First Focus, and he'll update us on what's happening with the Children's Health Insurance Program. Spoiler, not that much. And a little trivia, Bruce is the first male voice we've had on the podcast. But first, the big news... I don't news... know how I feel about this. <laughs> <laughs> first, the big news of the week, obviously, is the collapse, again, of Republican efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. After a brief boomlet, Republican Senators Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina acknowledged Tuesday what most of us already knew, which is that they didn't have the votes for their bill that would redistribute Obamacare money among the states and cap the Medicaid program. So this time it really is dead, at least for now, right? Yeah, it seems it seems quite dead. Uh, We are all saying earlier we feel a little bit taken for a ride because when you looked at the policy, it was really hard to see how they were going to overcome the same divisions that they had uh, last July. And one thing that really struck me earlier this week as I was reaching out to some of the moderate senators is uh, Susan Collins' office told me that they really didn't get any direct outreach from Cassidy or Graham uh, or Santorum. Uh, and and that was like really interesting because I think if they had any real shot, they that they were going to have to do really targeted outreach to both Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And in the end, it, I think it was really telling that they didn't they didn't pursue that strategy and they weren't able to get their votes. And then of course, uh, Rand Paul's defection, and then the whole thing crumbled. Alice, why did it take them so long to, to to realize what we pretty much knew from the start? Well, they were they were trying the exact same formula that failed before, which is throw some more deregulation at at the right end of the caucus and throw a little bit more money, but depending whose chart you read and believe, maybe not even, at the more moderate side of the caucus and think that cobbling that together is going to get you the votes, which didn't work in July and didn't work this time either. And in a sense, it was a little bit harder because insurers had been kind of standing back through most of this and hadn't really come out. And I think it was really telling that the week before uh, America's health insurance plans finally came out officially against the bill uh, and saying- In really strong terms, Yeah, that was a remarkable letter. For an organization that had really stood on the sidelines for a long time, they didn't come out and sort of weakly say, this is not exactly the bill we want to say. They, They said, like, this is a terrible bill that you know, will cause untold problems and it should not be law. So I guess the big question now is going forward, what happens? And I think that kind of separates into two different buckets. One of them is what happens next on Capitol Hill and what happens next in the Trump administration. Let's start start with Capitol Hill. What what what's the next step? Well, many people in uh, the Democratic and Republican side of the aisle have been calling for begging for the resumption of negotiations around a stabilization bill to do something about um, the individual market, although really it's kind of too late for 2018, but it still needs to be done. The markets need this security and and certainty going forward. And negotiations had been going on for months in the health committee, uh, Alexander and Murray, and they were dropped when the repeal effort picked up again. And 
they the leadership ordered them dropped. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the president said, you should abandon this. And the House said, we're not interested. So it fell apart. And they're hoping they can put something back together. That's not certain I'm, right I'm now. I'm curious what you guys think. How real do you think the stabilization effort is and how ceremonial do you think it is? You know, as Alice said, it seems to be too late to do anything about the rates for 2018. Uh, it doesn't include a lot of the stabilization measures or it doesn't appear to the current deal doesn't appear to include a lot of the stabilization measures that witnesses before the committee said that they needed. Really, the deal, as we understand it from Senator Alexander, is some certainty about funding for these cost-sharing reduction subsidies that go to insurance companies that have, are sort of been under this cloud of uncertainty and maybe some flexibility around uh, how states manage their insurance markets, which, you know, I think is not clearly going to lead to, quote unquote, stabilization. And I think there are a lot of people in the Congress and in the advocacy community that want this to move forward, mostly as a symbol of bipartisan cooperation and regular order and committee hearings and committee markups. But like, do any of you guys think that this package, if it passes the way Alexander wants it to, is really going to make a big difference at this point? It'll make a difference for 2019. I mean, that that's what, you know, as, as people point out, yes, you know, Wednesday, yesterday was the deadline for uh, plans to, to sign their contracts for, for 2018. But they start planning for, for 2019 just in a couple of months. So it, I don't think you it, think like if the C- if, if Trump continues to pay these subsidies for all of 2018, is, is there really going to be that much uncertainty about whether he pays them for 2019? And if he pulls them for 2018, don't you think that gives the insurers the information they need to set their premiums for 2019? Well, and, but what happens to the lawsuit? I mean, there, I mean, the, the reason that we've been going month to month with these, these cost-sharing reductions is because there's this pending lawsuit that the Republicans who sort of who won at the lower court level saying that that it was that there was not an official appropriation for this money. Um, the Republicans don't don't really want to cut the money off because that would be disruptive. So they've kept stringing out the lawsuit saying that, well, we're going to resolve this. We're going to resolve this. But at some point, the judge is going to say, hello. Yeah. I mean, they. I, my understanding is they have a, the Trump administration has a limited time. At some point, they're going to have to say whether they're going to challenge the lawsuit or not. And my sense is if they decide they're not going to challenge and then, of course, the onus would be on the Republicans to pass this funding. Um, I feel like Republicans have railed against this funding as like, quote unquote, bailout for so long that I could see a scenario where perhaps they funded it, but they kind of slipped it into like a larger bill. Because I think I think like when it comes down to it, they're going to realize that they need to do this because now they do have responsibility for the marketplaces. But politically speaking, I don't think they would really want to explain it. And they don't want to kind of look as though they're propping up this law and, it, you know, providing this bailout that they've kind of railed against for so long. Well, that's that's a problem because now they're running out of things to attach it to. <laughs> and and so not only are we running out of time, we're running out of vehicles for such a legislation for them, like you say, to not do it as a standalone, which could be politically problematic. But I is, I do think it's important for the markets beyond symbolically showing that Congress can do anything. Um, I think that the current month-to-month instability is unsustainable. You have some insurers already assuming in their rates that these are going to go away, but some aren't, and some are submitting two rates 
just in case one or the other happens. And so that sort of situation is not sustainable well, yeah, long term. That, that's a really interesting dynamic because like when you look at the states that are running their own marketplaces, they can set their they don't have the they didn't have the deadline yesterday of submitting the rate. So they're all they're taking and that's different what, 13 states. Right? That's about 13 states. Yeah. yeah. And they're taking different approaches. Like in Maryland, I think they announced their rates on Tuesday and those rates assume that the CSRs don't continue. They went with the higher set of rates. I think Maryland announced rates and they assumed that they would continue. And so, and the fear insurers have is that, say, they assume that the the subsidies uh, uh, won't continue, and so they go with the higher premiums, and then the Trump administration keeps paying them, and then they're stuck with these higher premiums, which they didn't want to have to charge consumers. So they're they're trying to push off the, the their announcements as long as possible, I think, uh, because they're really afraid of being in a situation where they're kind of caught by surprise. It feels too late to me now. I mean, I, I think the only possibility for the Alexander Murray legislation, if it's going to pass, is that it's going to pass in December with the kind of big package of must-pass leftover spending stuff. You know, the exchanges, the state exchanges can put things off for a short period of time, a couple of weeks maybe, but open enrollment begins in November and they're not going to have the answer that they need at this open point. Open enrollment will be over by the time they do this December package. <laughs> Seriously, it ends December 15th. In in most states. Some yes, that's extent. true. Some, yeah. yeah. And, 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 it, and it could end up. Uh, but also a, another potential issue that one major insurer flagged for me was that the insurers that are setting their prices, assuming they won't get the CSRs, if they do get the CSRs, then they might have to do rebates. And it's just a mess right now. <laughs> and of course, my, my continuing question, procedural question about all of this is, can Alexander and Murray even really do the CSRs? The, the, the lawsuit is over whether or not it's an appropriation. Doesn't it have to be in an appropriations bill? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to save that for for another podcast. Some someone, probably me, will end up researching that. But I keep wondering: is that why is the authorization committee working on this appropriation issue? <laughs> um, so let's talk for a little bit about the Trump administration, because clearly the president doesn't think that this is dead. Uh, and Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, one now one of the the no votes that brought down the latest effort, yesterday was talking about an executive order that would make it easy for easier for associations to form health plans that would be exempt from. Most state regulations. Can the administration even do this? Well, uh, there is a provision already in the Affordable Care Act in Section 1333, I think, which does allow states to uh, to kind of go this route of allowing... Um, well, they can do interstate compacts, sell across state lines. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, but, yeah, I don't know if Trump necessarily, uh, you know, recognizes that. <laughs> and then there was some discussion about... It was about in my video. <laughs> And then, but then there was some discussion about changing the labor department regulation. Um, yeah, I think. Well, this is this. the association health plan part of it, which okay, is so this the, was there was a big piece of legislation about association health plans that's been kicking around for a year. Nineteen nineties, and the most recent incarnation of it got tacked onto the BCRA. So one of the Senate bills that was on the floor and got voted down included uh, this idea of association health plans. And as I understand it, the idea is that. Uh, if you are a large company under current law, you can set up your own insurance plan and you can self-insure for the, your employees and you are not subject to state insurance regulations. There's a federal law called ERISA that has different rules. So like the New York Times has – or actually my our union has a plan uh, – it's subject to ERISA rules. It's not subject to New York state rules or Washington, D.C. rules. And what this law would have, this bill would have done is it would have said that other groups of people, say members of a church or 
independent plumbers or members of a gym. Or members of the National Federation of Independent Business, whose idea this was in the first place. Small businesses. Could band together and create an association that would function similarly to the New York Times, that they would be able to buy insurance as a group, that they would not be subject to the state regulations in the states where they reside, and instead they would be subject to this federal regulation. I talked to a bunch of experts about this yesterday, and no one really seems clear on how this could be achieved without legislation, how this could be achieved with an executive order. So it's really hard for me to wrap my head around what exactly it is that Trump and Rand Paul are talking about. I think both of them also were very imprecise in the language that they used. But I do think this idea of association health plans is not a new idea, and it's one that has been studied a fair amount and thought about. And the real concern is that it might be okay for the people in these associations, but what it would tend to do is pull healthier people out of the small business insurance market and out of the individual market. And it probably would tend to be destabilizing for those people who remain. Because if you're the association of bakers, you might prefer to have healthier bakers in your pool, or you might prefer not to cover as many benefits, which is possible under ERISA. And so all the sick bakers would sort of be left behind. I call it the opposite of a high-risk pool. It's a low-risk pool. And we've kind of seen it in action this year uh, in Tennessee, where they had a lot of trouble getting insurers to participate in the individual market. Uh, The Tennessee Farm Bureau has its own plan, and it has tended to take healthier people, leave the sicker people in the individual market. That makes them a worse risk for insurers, and that's one of the reasons why they had so much trouble getting insurers to participate this year. I think Rand Paul said that, you know, who could oppose this? And I'm like, "Um, I have a list of hundreds of organizations that oppose this. But uh, I think there are things that the president probably could do to help organizations like the Tennessee Farm Bureau. So right now, people who buy those association plans in states are still uh, subject to the individual mandate penalty. Obviously, the Trump administration has some discretion about who gets a hardship exemption from that penalty. So they could say, if you want to buy a Farm Bureau plan in Tennessee, then you don't have to pay a penalty. But this idea of having kind of national association health plans that are not just uh, available to people in a particular state, but are available to people across the country. I am very curious to see what the language of that executive order is and what the details of the regulation that accompanies it would be, because I think it's legally harder to achieve that without new law. Yeah, I think you're right. Anything anything to add here? Well, I just I, they they love to announce that things are coming very soon and then wait a very, very, very long time or we never see them. Um, I mean, how long have we been waiting for this uh, birth control mandate rule? So I, I would caution people that <laughs> this this could be some posturing and messaging to show, you know, that they're doing something around health care. We still care. After the collapse in Congress, and it may or may not pan out. I take this opportunity to offer a brief plug for my colleague. Uh, my colleagues at The Times, Kevin Qualey and others, did a great piece yesterday where they had a list of all the things that President Trump said were coming very soon. And it was just a very long list of things that have not happened. I second that plug. (laughs) All right. um, I I also want to talk about uh, Secretary Tom Price, Health and Human Secretary, uh, and his private plane travels. Our colleagues at Politico have been all over this story about how the secretary has been using private jet services, apparently not just for official business, but for official business and personal business, including things like having lunch with his son in Nashville. Um, My 
main question is, how does Price still have his job? In any other administration, he would have been gone last week. Well, yeah. I mean, I was talking to uh, even when you when you look at the rules around ethics uh, inside the agencies and a, a former CMS or I was talking to yesterday was saying that you couldn't even, you know, tack a personal trip on to the end of, of an official trip without first going back to D.C. and then returning on your own dime. And so this is well outside of what your like rank and file employee at CMS would be allowed to do. Um, it's anyone's guess what happens next week, but I did notice that uh, the Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee uh, is is looking into and, and requesting information from the administration on travel by uh, agency officials. And so I do think there are Republicans on the Hill that are taking note of this and are um, not feeling too great about having to potentially defend price going forward. Um, so, But I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to venture to guess uh, what will happen next week. So Tom Price, of course, former member of Congress, former Budget Committee chairman, what, what what are his his former colleagues saying on the Hill? Well, I think that a lot of the anger at him from the Trump administration is also because he has been very ineffective at selling repeal on the Hill. He's visited a bunch of times. Well, everyone has been, right? Right. Everyone <laughs> from the administration. It's true. They haven't they haven't gotten it done. They haven't swayed people. They've been there a lot. They've had a lot of meetings. And here we are. So I think that while you know, the plain stuff is pretty outrageous and wasteful. I think that it's it's tied into not not accomplishing this major goal as well. Maybe that's why we saw I mean, the president was pretty strong yesterday saying he is not happy with the HHS secretary and someone asked, will he be fired? And he said, we'll see. Mm-hmm. That seemed sort of ominous. I feel like we'll see is the opposite of very soon. <laughs> <laughs> Although we do we do know Trump loves firing people. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> but he also loves to bluff and not follow through. So <laughs> that's right. As people pointed out, Jeff Sessions still has his job. <laughs> Right. Right. All right. Well, the other big issue this week, obviously, is Children's Health Insurance Program. It's set to expire uh, at the uh, midnight Saturday and Congress clearly not going to do anything. But rather than having us talk about CHIP this week, uh, as I mentioned at the top, we have an interview. So here it is. I am pleased to welcome to our podcast studio Bruce Leslie. Bruce is president of First Focus, a nonpartisan advocacy group that pushes policies to improve the lives of children. Um, Bruce is a Washington veteran, having worked on Capitol Hill in a number of capacities. I will say he's been a great source of information to me for more years than either one of us wants to count. Uh, Bruce, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, Chip was going into this year was the thing that everybody said, oh, this is fine. We're going to get this done. This is not partisan. And yet here we are right up snug to the deadline. Not done yet. What happened? Oh, my gosh. So Chip is um, Chip is wildly successful. It's, been, it's cut the uninsured rate in this country by two-thirds. Um, when it was enacted in 1997, uh, the uninsured rate was about 15%. It's now below 5%. Um, I think if you ask the the average American what percentage of kids don't have health insurance, they would never guess that it was this low. Um, and so it's 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 been a bipartisan thing from its inception. Um, and even this year, um, Senator Orrin Hatch, who was a godfather of the program in its inception, um, has worked with Senator Wyden. And of course, Senator Hatch is now in charge of renewing the program. That's right. That's handy. <laughs> That's right. He's the chairman of the finance com- Senate Finance Committee. And he's worked with the uh, ranking member, uh, Democrat uh, Ron Wyden from Oregon, and they've come up with a deal. And so we've been then, you know, there was compromises made 
And, um, but the children's community is unanimous in support of it. And um, there's a letter with over 1,200 groups from across the country urging the extension of the Children's Health Insurance Program for five years. This compromise has that deal in it. And so we were all so happy and, you know, hoping Congress would move it um, as soon as possible because the funding does expire at the end of the month. And, um, and here we are. The Senate hasn't taken action because they're working, they've been working on um, things around um, repealing Obamacare still for the now ninth month um, <laughs> and really neglecting kind of things that really, you know, they self-impose things. Like two years ago, Congress set this date into law to say we have to extend the funding by September 30th, 2017, and they haven't done it. So. And there were a lot of people two years ago who wanted to do a four-year reauthorization, That's right? right. It, was, it was Orrin Hatch, as I recall, who insisted on two years. Yeah, well, it was definitely the kids' community was wildly for a four-year, and, um, you know, in its infinite wisdom, I guess, um, particularly the House, the House sort of um, pushed forward this two-year extension. And um, so they imposed this deadline on themselves, and it's really unfortunate that um, they're, they're failing to uh, to make the extension on a timely manner. And what does it mean to miss the deadline? I mean, you know, in some cases, I know when the when government funding runs out, government you know shuts down. Chip doesn't exactly shut down, right? But it's not good, I assume. Yeah. So the so there's so states do are allowed in Chip to roll over funding, and so um, pretty much all the states have some amount of rollover funding. The the issue is is that it's different for every state. Um, some states like Minnesota and Colorado. Um, are actually facing a, a more immediate crisis. Um, in Minnesota, the commissioner of health, the Department of Human Services, um, recently sent a letter to her delegation pointing out that pregnant women could cover, lose coverage effective October 1 unless they did all these machinations of trying to move money around and all kinds of things um, so that they could maintain coverage. And so states are having to do all kinds of workarounds to maintain um, children's CHIPS coverage and also, there's there's other problems that this causes. Um, so they they um, lots of states have fiscal responsibility laws. So if you're an agency and and the federal program that you're administering is going away or looks to be going away, you have to start planning eliminating the program. So you start having to have meetings and wind down, and you start having to think about cutting, you know, eliminating the administrative um, functions, and you even have to tell you have to send out disenrollment notices. To families um, that in X months we're going to cut your insurance. They also got to think about things like should they actually cut off the day they're enrolling people earlier so that a person, uh, let's say a pregnant woman who has, has coverage now can get through the entire pregnancy or a kid with cancer can get through the entire treatment. So there's actually states who are thinking about should we cut off coverage earlier so we actually have money left over. Um, some states, for example, um, buy their vaccines a quarter in advance. Well, I don't know that the pro they can't assume that Congress is going to do this, so they can't buy the vaccines that they're going to need for these kids. And so all kinds of negative consequences um, could happen, and yet there's people who keep saying, oh, it's fine, they have carryover money. Well, one of those voices was John Cornyn, who's the senator, senior senator from Texas, and he's been saying that. And... Um, and that may have been true. Texas may have been looking at having their money expire in 2018, for example, but they just had a hurricane. And so um, that big day, one. Yeah, big hurricane. And so 
That that number has un- that date of exhaustion of funding has undoubtedly changed, and in fact, I would argue that um, Texas now may be one of those states facing um, exhaustion early, much earlier, and certainly Florida, Georgia, Louisiana. Um, so as things change, like those dates aren't set in stone, and so um, huge implications of of Congress not acting. There there is a huge urgency, and Congress isn't dealing with it. So at least in the Senate, we have a deal that people support if they can get it to the floor. What's going on in the House? We haven't heard much. A lot of crickets over there. All right, right. So the Senate, the Senate has its five-year deal. The House, um, there was, there is bipartisan conversations, which is really good, um, on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. So um, Chairman Greg Walden from Oregon, and um, the ranking members Frank Pallone from New Jersey, as a Democrat. And um, they've been working on... And both supporters of the program, as I recall. That's right. Both very strong supporters of the program. So there's questions about, well, do we agree with a five-year extension or a four-year extension? We would prefer five, but we would take a four. Um, And some other kind of issues that they're um, small issues, though. In the past, there's been some bigger issues that have faced CHIP and some you know, some more minor issues that they're talking about. And then also the bigger issue has actually been what are the offsets? So extending the funding does mean, you know, putting more money into the program. So what are the things they're going to, you know, reduce so that um, they could come up with offsets to pay for um, the program? Um, that's really been the biggest sticking point. But um, It has permanent funding, though, right, through the tobacco tax, or does it? do they have to re-up that every time they renew the program? They do. They have to. Well, interestingly enough, the tobacco tax is permanent. The Children's Health Insurance Program is not. That's why I asked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So they do have a permanent funding source, and yet, um, you know, if, if it expires on um, September 30th, um, the pro- funding for the children's health insurance program discontinues, but the tobacco tax continues. So, I guess that money just goes into the federal treasury. Can, do they reattach it every time? Is that no? They don't oh. have to because that's sort of a permanent. Oh, I see. They can't basically. Right. Right. <laughs> so they have to keep. So every every renewal, they have to come up with money. That's right. That's right. Which is unfortunate because um, the tobacco tax was dedicated for kids and. Um, and it does still pay for a portion, you could argue, um, because it is in the baseline. But, um, you know, it is it is a problem because every time we have to come up with this. And this is this is a problem. I would say this is the one problem with the structure of CHIP um, in Medicare and Medicaid. Um, it's a mandatory program. So you don't have this problem. You don't have funding expire. Um, so while we love CHIP and think it's wildly successful, this is one aspect. It's sort of a quasi-block grant and so you do face these, you know, periodic times where you have to extend the program and it allows people to sometimes play games or just treat kids as an afterthought and kind of forget their own deadline. CHIP seems to me, you know, it's it's the one program that on the one hand, it does everything that Democrats want to do in health care, make sure that, that kids get covered. On the other hand, it does everything that Republicans say they want to do in health care, give states flexibility to do to you know, basically set the benefit package and decide whether they want to make it part of Medicaid or run a separate program. I mean, why why hasn't Chip been more of a model for the rest of the, the healthcare of system? Yeah, that's true. It's it is. It's it's um it's it's focused on the population it serves. So it's child centric. So and there was actually a um, an evaluation, a satisfaction survey in the uh, Chip program in Iowa not too long ago, and ninety three percent of people said they love it. And less than 1% said they were dissatisfied. 
I don't know about people listening to this or usually, but I don't know of a single insu- health insurance program that is like health insurance is actually not a very popular thing or or the companies. And here it's just it just works and it works really well because it's focused on kids and it's inexpensive. It's um, it has comprehensive benefits. It really works for families. Um, and it does have a lot of state flexibility. The states, um, the governors love it. Um, they they have been able to pattern it and um, do things that are very specific to their state. Um, um, the program, in fact, is often named after aspects of the state. So like Georgia's called Peach Care and Our Kids is AR Kids, Our Kids. In Arkansas. In Arkansas, that's right. And um, so people, they've, they've, they've really adopted and embraced it. And so it is, it is a potential model. And Orrin Hatch has talked about that in the past. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, here they, here's Congress letting it, the funding expire. So it's, it is the one piece of it that we actually don't love is the way the funding works. Well, we will keep on top of this. Bruce Leslie, thank you very much. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Margos, let's start with you. What's your extra credit? My extra credit is a story by Erin Mershon at STAT about something else that uh, Tom Price is doing. So I think, you know, Price is a former orthopedic surgeon. I think in the in Congress and as HHS secretary, he's been very concerned about the interest of other physicians and healthcare providers. I think he's sensitive to their needs. And his department recently put out a piece of guidance saying that they are looking for new ideas about how Medicare can reshape itself and do experiments in ways that may be more business-friendly. Uh, the Obama administration used authority under the Affordable Care Act to do a lot of experiments uh, that providers did not like. And now it seems like there's a call for ideas that providers will like. And one that was hinted at and that Tom Price has talked about for a long time is the idea that physicians should be able to enter into contracts with Medicare patients, that if they want if they want to charge higher prices than Medicare will pay, that patients should still be allowed to make those deals with them. That has been barred under Medicare so far. Medicare doesn't allow doctors to charge any higher prices than what Medicare charges. And I think it will be very interesting to see what kinds of proposals come into HHS and which ones they decide to move forward. I think we've all been very focused on what's happening in the individual market and Medicaid, but HHS has a ton of authority to change the Medicare program, too. And we're starting to see the earliest signs of what Tom Price's vision is for that program. I should mention the private contracting was another issue that got fought over repeatedly in the 90s. This is why I never throw away my paper files. <laughs> Alice, what's your extra credit? Uh, I'm looking at a piece uh, that was in BuzzFeed that built on a piece that Fox broke about uh, HHS's regional offices canceling their participation that they've done for years with these state-level Obamacare open enrollment events to promote enrollment, work with stakeholders and and navigators and people who help there, and they're just pulling out. They're no longer participating. Uh, This was like the Navigator announcement, a surprise, a last-minute surprise to the the people involved, and um, so I I think it's just part of this pattern. You know, we we were chatting before we started recording about well, how effective really are navigators in in the bigger picture? But I think that it's also important to see that the administration is canceling all of these out 
all of this outreach and enrollment work by claiming it's not effective, but they're not replacing it with anything that they're arguing is more effective. It's only subtraction. There's no replacement going on here. And so I think this is part of that pattern. And I thought it was striking how the language that some of these partner groups were using on the record in, in these stories, calling it sabotage, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you know, they keep saying it. Everything we get from HHS says it's failing. Well, they're now affirmatively trying to make it fail. And, and can I add one more detail that this uh, came out last week? There was a call with these uh, groups uh, in which it was revealed that the healthcare.gov website is likely to be offline for maintenance for 12 hours every Sunday during open enrollment, but one. A, yeah, right. Every Sunday, but one. Uh, so you, we are seeing this kind of drip drip of policy choices that are probably likely to marginally depress enrollment in the exchanges. And, you know, we could argue about whether the Navigator program is effective. We can talk about whether people actually are signing up at midnight on Sunday. But uh, it, it feels like part of a pattern. Paige. Uh, so mine's mine's pretty different. Uh, there was a story from the Cincinnati Inquirer that caught my eye last week amid all of the repeal replace craziness on the Hill, and uh, it was a really great story. They basically dispatched their reporters and photographers kind of around the Cincinnati area for about seven days in July, and it's called Seven Days of Heroin. And and basically the piece just tells all of these individual stories of people struggling with with addiction issues. It tells a story of uh, you know a pregnant woman and the effects on her baby and foster kids, you know, and it just it I, I actually spent some time reading it. Um, and I think it 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 kind of two things struck home for me. One is that how sad it is that local newspapers have lost a lot of resources because they're really the ones on the ground a lot of times that can kind of tell these stories in these small towns of of of, of how this problem of over prescribing and, and the lack of resources for people is really um, causing havoc in communities. Um, and, and, and yeah, of course, tie, you know, if you want to tie that into D.C., we have a commu- uh, funding for community health centers is facing a cliff, actually, uh, in just a few days with, here. Right, with the chip, with the expiration Exactly. Chip. Right, exactly. And so, you know, the, these, these, these decisions that lawmakers in, make here in D.C. have real-world consequences, and I think it's really important to be reminded of that. Well, mine is along those same lines. Uh, I'm going to do a shameless plug for our Kaiser Health News series called Medicaid Nation. The kickoff story by Phil Galewitz is called Medicaid Covers All That. It's the backstop of America's ailing health system. You know, even people who know that Medicaid serves the poor don't always realize the program now covers 74 million Americans. It's a, the, the largest government health insurance program. It pays for half of all births, 60 percent of nursing home and long-term care services. One thing I do think this, this year's debate has done is shine a light on the breadth of Medicaid. And whether you're for it or against it, I think that's been an important debate for us to have. Okay, end of my soapbox speech. Uh, That is it for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us too. If you have comments, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Alice Olstein. I'm at PW underscore Cunningham. (laughs) We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.